As I read this morning's scripture, these words of, of Paul, these, these stirring words about following Jesus, his words teaching us that we're not who we once were and we are to become who we are. As I read these words, I, I think of a story from the life of Jesus. Now, it's that incredible narrative when Jesus came to town. And when he came to town that time, there was a heaviness in the air. There was, there was a palpable grief because Jesus came to death town this time. And it seems that, that Jesus is curiously late, that he has somehow missed his queue. He's four days too late. So in the story, Jesus heads into a small village called Bethany up there on the Mount of Olives, heads there with his apprentices. And as he does, he knows that he will be greeted by grief. See, this is the hometown of Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. These are all good friends of Jesus. He's been to Bethany. He's been to their home on a number of occasions. But this time it's different. Jesus isn't just going to go to their house and, and experience the incredible hospitality of, of Martha and her work and, and the love and care of, of Mary who sits and, and just soaks in his teaching. They're not going to be having a big, big meal right away of food and fellowship and laughter. No, he, he's walking into a community. He's walking into a town that's been disrupted, that's been rattled by death. And as Jesus comes into the town, Martha, who's on top of things, she, she hears that Jesus is coming, so she runs to Jesus, and, and she says, Jesus. And, and, and he can see the emotion on her face, and he can hear it in her voice, and, and she says, Jesus, if you had been here, he would not have died. So like Martha, just shooting straight, right? And then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. At this point, Martha goes and gets Mary, brings Mary to Jesus, and, and Jesus can just see this emotional field, sense it around her. She is just broken. She is desolate. And she says the, the same thing. Rabbi, Jesus, if you had been here, he would not have died. Well, Jesus asks, where have you buried him? And then it's at this point we hear these words. Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps. Now, by the way, this is not some kind of soft, silent, stately crying. This is like hot mess, ugly crying. This is weeping. It's a technical term, weeping. Like he's, he's deeply weeping. Well, you might know where the story goes from here. Where Jesus goes from here is to the graveyard, to Lazarus' tomb. And he says, roll away the stone. And they roll away the stone. And that brings us to these words of John chapter 11, verse 43 through 44. It says, he, it's Jesus, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, come out. The man who died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. 
It's incredible. Jesus brings back to life a man four days dead. And so the dead man walks out. He walks out of the tomb. So question, when he comes out of this tomb, is he running and leaping? What's he doing? He's shuffling. Another question, why is he shuffling? Because he's bound up in death clothes, linen strips. He's like a mummy. These are his grave clothes. So what must happen? I mean, these moldering strips must come off, right? So here's here's the incredible thing. He's out of the grave. He's been brought back to life by the grace through the ministry of Jesus. But the grave clothes must come off. Okay, so then the grave clothes come off. What then? Lazarus stands around naked. No. New clothes must be put on. Lazarus needs to get out of the garments of the grave, and he needs to put on the clothes of resurrection life, the clothes of apprenticeship to Jesus. So is this not a real version of what Paul is teaching us about in Colossians 3? I wonder how much he had that story in his mind when he's teaching us these principles and these truths in Colossians 3. You are not who you were. You are not dead in your sin any longer. You're alive in Christ. You have been united with God, drawn into the very life of God because of the work of Jesus. So become who you are. Live like you are alive with the love of God. Live like you are alive with the love of God. Take off the clothes of your death days. Take them off. Well, this is what we talked about last week and the week prior to that. Last week, we saw Paul saying, count as dead, put to death, reckon as dead those ways of the kingdom of death, sexual immorality, covetousness, malice, verbal violence. You are dead to those things. Don't live in them. But Paul doesn't end there. He doesn't end there. He doesn't want us to be a bunch of naked Lazaruses running around, right? It's time to put on the garments of life. And that brings us to our verse here, verse 12 in chapter 3 of Colossians. So let's hear these again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Okay, I got to stop. I just got to stop right there. This is so Paul. This, like, he's on brand. This is what Paul does. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Like just, again, stop. What is he doing? Paul is constantly calling Christians to do in light of what's been done. He's constantly calling us to live in light of the love that has already been given to us. To live in light of God's love. Not to, not to earn our salvation, but to put in the effort born of salvation and live in accordance with who he is. Again, live like you are alive with the love of God. So he says, put on, but then he automatically goes, put on then as, remember what Jesus has done, and then he's going to say, okay, now do these things. He just constantly interweaves what God has done and are doing in light of what God has done. And so here he says, put on then, and he's going to give us a bunch of things to do, but do it in light of the fact that you are God's chosen ones, that you are holy, 
that you are beloved. These are all things that God has done, his work that has now changed and transformed us. God has chosen his people out of love. They're not accidentally his. We're not begrudgingly his like we followed some higher principle in this life. And he's like, well, I guess I have to bring them into the family because they did the stuff. It's out of his love that we are his. And in his love, he has made them and you and, and us holy. And what does holy mean? Self-righteous nose up in the air, never do anything wrong, right? No, it means that we are set apart for God to become like him as he is holy, not to be part of the ways of death and shame and guilt, but to be part of the ways of, of life in his kingdom, to be set apart. Or you could say this way, holy is, is to be made and be being made like Jesus, the Holy One. Well, he loves us, and what he's done and continues to do is because of his love, because we are his beloved children. Now, what's so cool about Paul here is he's drawing on truths from the Old Testament. He's saturated in the scriptures. He's meditating on the scriptures day in and day out. And he's going to connect um, this life in Jesus with what happened with the Exodus. So remember, in the Exodus, God redeemed his people out of slavery, right? He, he took them out of the tyranny that they were experiencing in Egypt, took them out of that slavery, and he brought them through death, and he brought them to Mount Sinai, to his presence, to be in his presence, and then to live in a new way. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy. This is uh, the fifth book in the Old Testament. Um, Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. Here's what it says. Keep in mind what we just read. Link these passages. Moses says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." So did you see how these passages overlap? Did you see the common, common words? So now, as followers of Jesus, knowing that he has taken his people out of Egypt, or knowing that he has brought Lazarus out of the grave, or, or how he has brought us out of death and into life, we are to live like the living to live like those who met God on Sinai, to, to live like Lazarus, now free from the, the grave clothes, to live like Paul is teaching us to live. And so what Paul does here, he gets really practical. Paul is constantly connecting these massive, big uh, theological ideas with just ground-level practicality. How do I live this out? And so he's going to give us a list of five things here, a list of, I guess you could call it ethical clothing, a list of ethical clothing. Let me format it this way. I think, I think it'll help. Um, so look at verses 12 and on here. As you do, you'll notice the way I outlined it here, you're going to see Paul's obsession with linking do and done. Put on then, a call to do. That's the uh, imperative. But then he says, 
Well, you're God's chosen ones. Okay, well, this is what's, what's been done, what God has done or what God is doing. This is the, the indicative. And then he goes right back to the now do these things. And then towards the end, he's going to say, oh, by the way, God has forgiven you what God has done. And then he's going to say, so then you should forgive, do. You see how he sandwiches all this? It's, it, I mean, he just goes back to Jesus obsessively. Obsessively. Okay, so let's, let's try to open this list up with the time that we have this morning. So verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. Oiktirmas splanchthnon. That's just fun to say. Splanchthnon. This means, this means guts of love. Put on gutsy love. Bowels of mercy. Like, that's weird. Like in, intestines of compassion. Like what's that about? Because you know how it is when you feel something deeply, whether it's compassion or or grief. Where does it register? Is it like floating up here? Like it's it's like deep in your innermost being. It's it's in your stomach. It's why we feel a pit in our stomach. It's why we feel butterflies. In our, we feel it deep in our, our guts. And he says, you should have compassion, a, a, a love for others when you see them in pain and when you see them in suffering. It should do something to you. It, it should create this emotion and this posture within you that makes you then want to do something to help that person in their pain or in their suffering. You should have guts of love. Put on guts of love for the glory of Jesus. Well, then he says, put on kindness. Crestotes. Uh, this, is, this is a word that was often used to refer to the aging of wine into a mellow uh, a mellow phase where, where it's just really, really good. The, the, the mellow aging of, of wine. It's not sharp. It's not, it's not acidic. It's, it's not like offending your, your palate. It's, it's sweet. It's lovely. This is a quality of God. Romans 2.4. It is the kindness or the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. That word kindness can often be translated goodness. Like it is the goodness, like it is to experience somebody's goodness. When someone is kind to you, you are experiencing the goodness of who they are. It is goodness expressing itself in deeds and actions. That's what kindness is. Put on this kindness, the kindness of our God. Next he says, put on humility Tapeno frosune. There's a word for you. Now, this one, uh, this is a radically countercultural value for the Roman world. The Romans did not value humility. They would say humiliation, that is what we are trying to run away from in our culture of honor and one-upmanship of each other. Humility, that's disgusting. Like, that, that's for the... The slave class, that's for the bottom of the barrel. They had no category in their worldview to lift humility up. It was simply not a virtue. It was a vice. But then Christianity comes and, and turns the world upside down and says, no, this is, this is a chief virtue. The humility of Christ. God came down 
not clamoring after honor, but he entered into the shame to bless other people, to lift them up. Rather than competing and crushing, he lifted them up. It's just the complete opposite of the Roman world. It's turned the Roman world upside down. So um, you could call this, this humility, uh, it's the absence of self-exaltation. Or in the positive, it's the presence of sober self-assessment. It's the presence of sober self-assessment. For us as creatures, as image bearers of God, it means that we have sober self-assessment. We are not God. We are not king. We are creatures made in, created in his image. And we are to worship him and love others, not exalt ourselves up over him or over other people. It is the absence of self-exaltation and the presence of sober self-assessment. It is primarily comparing yourself to God, not other people to be lifted up over them, but comparing yourself to God, realizing that you are somebody who has a deep and, and eternal dependence and need on God. And that puts us in our place, not as worms, but as image bearers of God to live in joy. Well, the next one is meekness. Put on meekness. Put on the garment of Gentleness. So meekness and gentleness, this word can be translated both ways. It's this, this word, prautes. Um, and this is not a word for doormat. This is not a word for uh, passive. This is not a word for apathy. This is not a word for groveling. And this is not a word for pushover. This is a word about power. Gentleness or meekness is a word about power. It's how do you steward your power? Are you, are you stewarding the power that God has given you in such a way that it is used for the good of others or for the grabbing of the, and, and good for the self? So this is a word about how one uses power. Moses was meek. He used his power well for the good of other people's. Uh, Jesus says, remember, uh, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart. That's the, the word prous or prouts. He uses that. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is using his power for the good of others. Meekness, gentleness refuses to grab and clamor and coerce and use violence to get what one once doesn't mean you're passive. You can be quite assertive. You can be um, quite strong in your words and your actions and be gentle and meek. This brings us to patience, macrothemia, uh, another uh, polysyllabic word, lots of syllables in Greek. Uh, this means long-suffering. Long-suffering in the face of injury, in the face of hardship, insult, and provocation, trusting God with outcomes. It means trusting God with outcomes. And not having to have the last word. Not having to, to do the smackdown and be like, oh, I won that battle. It was so good. Suffering. It, it's, it's easy to be patient when things are really good. But this is patient in the face of hardship, insult, provocation. Well, so he lists these five, and then he kind of now, he sums these up with these following sentences here. It says, putting these things on, uh, putting on Jesus' ethical clothes on, we are then to be, verse 14, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, 
Anechomai, endure. We are to endure, to stick with one another. Man, this is, this is not the, the church age of sticking with one another. Culturally, this is the church age of going, really didn't like what the pastor said this morning. Really didn't like the outfit of the people on stage. Really didn't like the songs. I don't quite agree with X, Y, or Z. And I know we made this covenant thing, but like the church down the road is super hip. And it's happening. Now that doesn't mean we don't work towards uh, bettering communities by trying to be more faithful to Scripture. But, but we are to bear with one another, to stick with one another, to not give up on one another, to not throw each other away and to just stop listening to one another even if we disagree with one another. There's a, there's a, a grit to the community of the saints. There's a grit there. And as you do this, he says, you will undoubtedly offend one another, hurt one another, and damage each other. I would ask you guys to raise your hands if I have offended, hurt, or damaged you, but it, it just we wouldn't be able to see through the force of arms. That's up, because I have. I, uh, 14 years here, I, I know I have, and I, I'm sorry for that. But the longer that you are with someone, um, and the longer that you really try to have authentic relationship, not just plastic, you know, um, kind of interactions, when you have real thick relationship, you will offend and hurt one another. It's why, it's why marriage is so hard, because you are deeply intimate, which means you can deeply hurt one another. And it's why there is such a thing as deep church hurt. Because we shouldn't have plastic relationships. We should have deep, authentic relationships. Which means we will hurt one another. There's hurt in this room. Some of it's healed, some of it's not. And that's why we need to forgive one another. And so that's why Paul says this. He says, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And th- this word is awesome, karitsomai. Uh, um, it's, it's linked to the word grace. The word grace uh, uh, is charis, karitsomai. To for- forgive is linked to grace. Why? Because uh, I don't forgive you because you've earned my forgiveness and you've, you've fully proved that you will never hurt me. It's a grace. To forgive is a grace. Not only is it you giving grace, it's you can only forgive because God has graced you and forgiven you and given you now a heart of love and joy and you know you're loved and accepted so then you can forgive others rather than standing over them in judgment and condemning them. Forgiveness is a grace from God. He's first forgiven us and now graces us to grace other people with forgiveness to show who he is. So there's a lot of forgiveness that, that's needed when you in, are in a thick community, true community. It should never be a sign of like, man, we're just, we're just not getting it right because we, we've hurt one another. Now we have to forgive one another. That means we're actually leaning into being apprentices of Jesus, that we, that we are having to go through this painful process or these crucial conversations of getting to the truth and forgiving one another. That should be an encouragement to us that we have true community, and we're not just bouncing when there's something we don't like or something we don't quite agree with. So let's grow in our Christ-likeness by forgiving one another is what Paul is saying. We do in light of what Jesus has done. He's forgiven us, and now we forgive others. 
And every time, by the way, that we put these things on or that we forgive someone for hurting us, your soul is formed just a little bit more, right? Our soul is now becomes just a little bit more prone to then doing that the next time. And I, just, I want to say this because this is how I, I read it. Maybe you don't, but, you know, I read this list. I put these things on, and then I go, well, that's just, it feels so contrived, like artificial. I'm just supposed to do these things that I don't feel. I want to do the things that are, that are really true. But as you do these things, we get into our, our, our head and our hearts and even our, our, our neurology, uh, we become rehabituated to now being more prone to or primed to forgive more quickly, primed to put on compassion, primed to put on mercy because we are moving away from the old self and living into who we are. Compassion. Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, these things can be habituated or incorporated into not just our hearts, but our very, our very bodies. Now, um, <clears throat> Paul has uh, dressed uh, us up in the ethical clothing of Jesus here, um, and now he's going to take it up a notch. He's going to complete our outfit, okay? He's going to complete our outfit by putting on the completing overcoat that links it all. Look at verse 14. He says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In other words, love is not simply one among the other virtues. It is the binding agent that links it all together. It is the lifeblood that throws, flows through all of the veins and arteries of these things. And it's, if you want to use the clothing analogy, it's like this well-fitting overcoat that ties everything together in, in the outfit. Or to change the metaphor, it's like the super magnet that draws together all the iron filings of the good things of, of God. And the word there for binds is actually a word for ligament, like in the body. A ligament that holds things together. Love holds all things together. God himself is love. Jesus is the one who is, is called the one who holds all things together. It is the love of God within that allows us to love our neighbor, thereby empowering compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, long-suffering, and forgiveness. Love is the life breath of each of these. Well, Paul's on a roll here, so he's going to keep on going. He's going to then say, look, peace Peace is key to all of this. When we have the love of God in us, when we have that love, we have the peace um, that we need to calm our, our, our restless souls. So we have peace with God now. And then that peace with God will translate out into the peace of God and how we live our lives. In other words, we have a vertical peace that then is expressed horizontally. And the, the word here for let that peace rule in your hearts is, is the word umpire. How important is a good umpire or a ref in a game? Okay. Okay. I won't go there with the games. Okay. Um, very important to have a good umpire. In other words, he's saying let love umpire your relationships. Let love make the good calls. Let that peace that you have with him extend to other people. You're okay with him. Let that help ump these other relationships in your life. And be thankful. 
Be thankful that you are not who you once were. Be thankful that you are becoming who you are. Be thankful. And now as these Jesus-clothed, loving, and peace-ruled apprentices of Jesus, we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And that happens in a number of ways. Look at verse 16. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in other words, we are to meditate upon the glory of Jesus, to, to tune our eyes, our attention, our gaze to the wonders of the gospel. We are to look upon the things that are above, which is how he starts this whole chapter off. And we are to hide the truth of God's word in, in our hearts, to, to, to drink it up, to meditate on it, right? That word Hagah, to chew it up and to get it into our system and to metabolize it. And then one of the best ways to, to, to have the word of God dwell richly in us is this ironic thing. It's we, we give it away. We give it away. We, we speak the truth. We teach one another. We admonish one another. We don't hold it in like a reservoir. We, we open it up like a channel and more of the word then fills us up and flows through us as we give it away. As we sing songs together, as we come together on a Sunday and sing and our voices are raised and and he is praised, and, and we are encouraged as the body sings forth these, these praises. The word dwells in us richly. And then, again, he says, be thankful. See, because thankfulness is the proper response to grace. Like, gratitude is just simply the proper response to grace. The, the, the two go together. Grace, gratitude, call, response. It's, it's, it's the order of the universe. So be thankful, people. And then, because he wants to say so much more, but he has to move on to other things. He covers his bases here in verse 17. This is like the big junk drawer of it all. He says, in word or deed, do everything. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Be a faithful witness to the love of God in absolutely everything. Now, <clears throat> let's pause. That's a lot of putting on. That's a big wardrobe. You know, all these clothes, and you're going you're gonna to be like this, right? It's a lot of putting on. But here's something I don't want us to miss in the mix of all this. Um, so let's, let's do this, because uh, it's right there in the Lazarus story. Go back to John 11, verses 43 through 44. Go back to the cemetery. Go back to Lazarus's grave, to the place where, where life sparkled and, and there was rejoicing that erupted. I want to read it one more time so we catch it. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus has just shown power over death. He has just raised a man four days dead, a man completely incapable of saving himself. Jesus, I, I imagine, I, I suppose he could have walked over to Lazarus and he could have kissed him on the cheek, and he could have hugged him, and then Jesus doing a very Jesus-y thing, he could have got down and started to unwind the death clothes himself. But he doesn't. He doesn't. What does he say? Well, what does it say? You guys just can read it, right? Unbind him, let him go. Who is he talking to? Who is the them that he's talking to? 
Lazarus' community, Lazarus' family, Lazarus' friends. He's talking to, to his own apprentices. He's commissioning them to start pulling the death clothes off shuffling Lazarus, who's ready to leap because he's back. So do you see it? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? What an image, the community of the saints coming around one who has just come back from the dead, peeling off the dead clothes of a man who's been breathless for four days. That's, that's incredible. This is Jesus' beautiful intentionality, teaching his disciples what life in community is like, what life... Uh, bound together by the Holy Spirit, mediated by Jesus is like the communion of the saints. So if you think about our list in Paul now, if you think about compassionate guts, bowels of mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, which one of those is done in isolation? None of them. They're done in relationship. Think of the relational essence, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, put on love, thankfulness, admonishing one another, be singing as a people to God with each other. It's all done in relationship with other people. This is not some lone wolf kind of religion. This is done in community because we are called into the triune community of God. And, and I think we need to be really careful here when we, when we think about the putting on and the taking off. Because we will go towards um, a bent, and we will think of putting on and taking off in a very Western individualistic kind of individualism, a, a radical individualism that, that says, like, I, I'm, I'm going to go do these things. We will think about this in a very uh, autonomous, eye-centered way, rather than seeing it in relationship to God, who is the one who empowers it, and in relationship to a community where these things are worked out in love and grace. And I guarantee you that this taking off and putting on will challenge your convenience, your comfort, and your consumerism at every stage of the journey. And it will feel hard and painful, yet also easy and good because he is the one bearing the load with you. Again, we are not who we were. We are to become who we are. And so the question then needs to be asked, and, and we'll move towards our conclusion here with this. How is God showing you through his word today what you need to be putting on? What Christ-like garment needs to replace the old linen death cloth that you have been wearing? In other words, what clothes do I need to be changing? What clothes do I need to be changing? All of them. <laughs> yes, okay, but, but what is he drilling in on, focusing you on in this season of your life? What is he calling your attention to? And, and, and here's a caveat to this. Don't just ask this of yourself, because that's going to that, again, Western, radical, individualistic kind of mindset of like, okay, I'll just figure this out. No, no. Do it in relationship. Pray and ask him for his help to redress you. So pray to him. Ask him to search you and to help you redress. And then ask the community of God's people. Engage with your family, your friends, your, your calm group, your, your, your spouse, your coworker, and say, 
What, what grave clothes am I carrying? And what do I need to put on? Friends, I believe Jesus is calling us to help each other take off the grave clothes that we've had here in our own lives and maybe organizationally, systemically here at VCC for years. What new Jesus-like garments of apprenticeship are we to be wearing? Now, uh, as I close, I want to read you um, a snippet of a letter that's really powerful, that's captivated my attention, and I hope it captivates yours. It's, it's from um, a letter called, uh, well, the letter from Mathetes to Diognetus. Mathetes means disciple or apprentice to somebody named Diognetus, and it's from 130 A.D. Soak in this description of, uh, of a Christian life. Here's what it says. From chapter 5, the manners of the Christians, it says, Christians display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners, as citizens. They share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. What a sentence. They share their resources but not their sexuality in unhealthy ways. What a sentence. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, they surpass the laws of their lives. They love all men. They're persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. <laughs> Friends, here's a description of a people who are chosen by God holy and beloved, living in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. This is a description of those who are not who they were, but becoming who they are. This is a description of people shedding grave clothes and putting on the garments of apprenticeship to Jesus. May it be an accurate description of VCC here in this Tri-Valley. Above all, may we be dressed in the love of Jesus. Friends, what clothes? do we need to be changing? Father, would you help us with that? Would you help us with that? Would you help us to know what clothes that we need to be changing? Help us to gaze upon the gospel and the good news of Jesus and of your love and your forgiveness that we might be a people of love and forgiveness. And we thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And we thank you now that we can come to this table, this table that we have in common that we might experience your grace. In the name of Jesus, amen.